The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church today. I'm sure you're all aware this Friday is Christmas, right? Everybody's aware of that? Hopefully you got all your shopping done, you're all ready to go. (laughs) I'm also quite sure that you know, or at least you know that I believe, that Christmas is not when Christ was born. Okay, now I know you know that, okay? Most Christians, I don't think, know that, but he wasn't born on Christmas. So for our study this morning, I'd like to show you exactly when he was born. I want to talk about when the Incarnation actually took place, but I also want to throw something in a little extra and tell you what is special about December 25th. Because there's something biblical about December 25th. It's not the birth of Christ, but it is something I think that's important. So we'll talk about that now. So we're going to talk about the Incarnation and the Zodiac. The word Incarnation comes from two Latin words, in plus cargo, meaning enfleshment. The act of assuming flesh. Yahweh chose to become united to true humanity. At the incarnation, God the Son, the second person of the one triune God, was forever joined to true humanity. And this joining together has the designation as the hypostatic union. Hypostatic union is the doctrine of the personal union of the two natures, the divine and the human, of the Lord Yeshua. Christ is 100% man and 100% God. And that's where we get the theological term, theanthropic. There are going to be a test at the end, and I'm going to ask you all these, okay? So make sure you write these down and learn these, all right? Theanthropic comes from theos, which means God, and anthropos, which means man. Yeshua the Christ is the God-man. He is one person with two natures. So let's look at when the Incarnation actually took place and get some background here. Let's let's go to Genesis first, all right? Genesis 1, 6, and 7. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. The Hebrew word for expanse here is rakia. Rakia comes from the Hebrew raka, which means to beat, to stamp, to beat out, to spread out. Now listen, it was used for a beaten out metal plate. Okay, put that in your head. The expanse, a beaten out metal plate, right? This people is Hebrew cosmology. All right? In the ancient world, the sky was thought to be a solid dome encircled and enclosed around a flat earth. The interesting thing to me is this is just not Hebrew cosmology. Every culture has this as a cosmology. How come they all have to say, where did they get this idea from anyway? I mean, they're not out there knocking on the dome, you know. Oh, yeah, look at this, a dome structure, right? Where'd they get this idea from? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute, and I I think I got a clue maybe where they got it from, but all the cultures held to this view. All right, let's look at Genesis 1, 14 and 17. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day 
from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Now, it's interesting that he calls the moon a light, not a reflector. Two lights, okay? And the stars, and God set them in the expanse of the heaven to give light on the earth. So God takes these, the sun, moon, and stars are actually located inside the firmament. He places these in the firmament. Lights in the expanse, as if they're embedded there. And those lights are to be, he says, for signs and seasons. Now, the word sign here is from the Hebrew word ot, which means the sign or the seal. Now, Hebrew letters all have significance to them. Each letter represents words or concepts. And then you put them together and you have other concepts. And if you examine the Hebrew letters of the word ot, you get this, all right? Aleph is the first letter there. Aleph means leader. That's one of the uses, one of the meanings of the word Aleph. The second letter is Vav. And Vav, one of its uses is nail. Leader, nail. And then we have Tav, which is cross. So the sun, moon, and stars were first and foremost a sign of the leader nailed to the cross. Now that's interesting. You know, just some kind of strange coincidence, right? No connection to anything. Well, how do these heavenly lights point to Messiah? How do they do that? Well, two ways. First of all, the word season is the Hebrew word moed, which means appointed times, and it's referring to the feasts of Yahweh. Because the feasts point to the Messiah. All the feasts were about Yeshua. And they're dependent, these feasts are dependent upon the moon and the sun. So the sun, moon, and stars are placed where they are for the scriptural determination of the feasts of Yahweh, which point to Messiah, who is the leader, nailed to the cross. Secondly, I think there's more to this than just the feast. I believe that the stars are a sign that points to Messiah. To be more specific, I believe that the constellations of the zodiac are signs that point to Messiah and His death on the cross. Now, before you go getting upset at me, all right, I'm I'm talking about here astronomy, not astrology, okay? Astronomy is the study of God's creation in the stars, and it declares His glory. Astrology means the word about the stars. So astrology really is not a bad thing either, but in our culture, it has all kinds of weird meanings now. All right? Astrology is horoscopes and fortune-telling and, you know, your sign and, you know, it's all about you. Look at the stars and the stars are talking about you today. All right? That's just a bunch of nonsense, okay? That's all it is. These people are looking for the horoscope. What's going to happen to me today? I don't know. It depends on how dumb you act today. What's going to happen to you today? All right? Don't, don't count on that. All right? The original purpose was to tell us something about Yahweh and His plan for the world. The word zodiac is not a bad word. 
It comes from Zoad, which means path or way. It refers to the way the sun passes through the various constellations during the year. Now, the signs talked about in Genesis 1.14 can be understood when we look at the wise men, the magi, from the east who visited the young child Yeshua. They must have been very assured of the signs that they read in the heavens. They were convinced enough of the star that they observed in the east to go a great distance by camel. Because they knew something was going on there. These wise men were priests from the country where Daniel and the children of Israel had been held captive. Their culture was schooled in the study of the stars. Daniel was made chief and master over all the wise men and astrologers of Babylon, according to Daniel 2.48 and 5.11. So Daniel could have taught these priests about the promise of the coming Messiah to be born of the tribe of Judah and out of the house of David. Now, the view that I want to share with you this morning is laid out in E.W. Bullinger's book, Witness of the Stars, and Joseph A. Seiss's book, The Gospel in the Stars. It's asserted that the signs of the Zodiac were originally designed by God to communicate the Gospel. That is, the Gospel in the Stars. It was known to those living before the flood, and it was later corrupted into astrology. And so we we have to be taught, though, to recover that what is actually going on up there, to see the witness. Now, let me say to you that I'm sure you know this, that this view is not without critics, right? Do you know a view that is without critics? I I haven't found one yet. Michael Heiser, in his podcast, episode 138, entitled, What Day Was Jesus Born? And by the way, this is an excellent podcast. He'll go into much more depth to prove the date of the birth of Christ, all right? He says this, I'm going to disagree with Seiss and Bullinger and Kennedy, Kennedy holds the same view, that you can get the whole story of the cross in the heavens. I don't believe that. I think that goes way too far. What I do think Paul was thinking, though, is that the stars specifically communicate the arrival of the divine king. So, Heiser disagrees with the view that I'm going to present to you in a minute. But he does say, you know, I I think that giving it the whole gospel, he says, I think that's too much. But he says the stars definitely communicate something, and he thinks they just communicate the arrival of the king. All right? He goes, so in that sense, Paul believes it's possible for the news about Jesus coming to be known to everyone. In other words, everybody should have known that a divine king had been born because the heavens declare it. Now, hang on to that. Everybody should have known because the heavens declare it. Heiser then says this, if looking at the heavens was sufficient for evangelism, so he's talking about the gospel and the stars, he doesn't think it says that, because he says if it was sufficient, why would Jesus send out apostles? So again, I'm disagreeing with Seiss and Bullinger and Kennedy here. Now, To me, that's not a very strong argument. And here's why. The constellations have to be explained in order to be understood. All right? The apostles had to be sent out because people looking up at the stars, they didn't get that unless it was somehow taught to them. Okay? You don't just look and say, wow, look at that star. Christ was born to die for... No, it doesn't happen that way, people. Okay? We'll talk about this in a minute. Heiser, and maybe I'm seeing this wrong, but he seems to contradict himself later when he says this. He says, if you're just looking at Matthew 2, 
you don't have the context for understanding what that is. In other words, if you weren't one of the magi and you saw that thing in the sky, you wouldn't think anything of it because you lack the astronomical wider context. I, I, I know, that's what I'm saying. He says, well, I don't see it there, but because they, they wouldn't they need to send apostles out. No, it has to be explained, and that's what he's saying right there. The Magi knew it. Other people didn't know it. They had the wider context. You don't really know exactly what you're looking at. That's my point. Somebody's got to teach you. So without the context, listen, you're not going to look up at the star and say, wow, the gospel, wow, that's beautiful, all right? Now, as always, I'm asking you, all of you, to be Bereans. I don't want you to believe what I'm telling you. I don't want you to reject what I'm telling you. I want you to study it out for yourself, do some homework, look into it, and see for yourself, is this true? To me, this view is fascinating, and it answers questions that that I've had about various texts. Now, John P. Pratt writes this about the view of the gospel in the stars. He says, suffice to say... That when I examine the evidence as a PhD in modern astronomy, okay, so this is not Joe Bubba, this guy's done a little homework, okay, he knows a little about what he's talking about, a student of ancient wisdom and a practicing Christian. I like that, practicing Christian. Some people don't practice too much. <laughs> they, don't, they don't practice too much. I have found more evidence favoring the proposal than against it. I now accept the overall concept in spite of several reservations. To me, there's enough good evidence to accept the overall theory, even though many of the details, and especially the translation of star names, need a lot of work. All right. So, if these things have to be seen, if we got to be taught, how do we ever get this? Where did this information come from? Well, I think the book of Enoch gives us some insight into this. Now, again, I'm going out of Scripture Talking about Enoch, let me tell you something. I, I, I talked about this just recently, but the book of Enoch was something that the people in the first century were reading. The New Testament writers quote from it several times. So the book of Enoch is part of the context of the Bible because the Bible comes out of this era when these were books they were reading. So we, we learn things by understanding the context. We talk a lot about context. It's not just the chapters, not just the verse, not just the book. It's the context what the Scripture came out of. And that context is these pseudepigraphal works. All right? They tell us, Enoch tells us that these constellations were taught to people by the watchers. Okay? Let's look at Enoch 8.1. And Azazel taught me to make swords and knives and shields and breastplates and made known to them the metals of the earth, and the art of working them, and bracelets, and ornaments, and the use of antimony. Now, (laughs) antimony, what is that? Anybody know what that is? Ah, very good. What would you say? It's like makeup, okay. It's a chemical element. The symbol is SB, and the atomic number is 51. It's a gray metalloid. It's found in nature mainly as a sulfide mineral, and it's used to make makeups and medicines. All right? So they're saying, hey, look, the watchers are teaching men, if you take this metal, if you take this stuff from the ground, you can do this, you can make medicines, you can make, oh, you can make yourself look better. All right? And the beautifying of the eyelids and all kinds of costly stones and all coloring tinctures, and there arose much godlessness 
and they committed fornication, and they were led astray. So it's like, these watchers are not helping men out here, okay? They're leading them in a way that they really weren't supposed to go with, with that stuff, okay? Some Jazza taught enchantments and root cutting. Armoros, the resolving of enchantments. Berkeljol taught astrology. And Kakabel, the constellations. So these watchers are teaching men something about astrology, something about the constellations. Asekiel, the knowledge of the clouds. Erekiel, the signs of the earth. Shamzeel, the signs of the sun. And Sereel, the course of the moon. So Sereel here is teaching the course of the moon. And as men perished, they cried, and their cry went up to the heaven. So now, if what Enoch says is not true, okay, if it wasn't the watchers teaching this, knowledge of the constellations would have had to have been a special revelation. Because the pictures just aren't there for anyone without a lot of instruction. Okay? I'm going to show you this a little bit later. Prove this to you. You're not going to figure this out if someone's not teaching you. Now, let me share with you some texts from Scripture that lead me to believe that the zodiac points to Christ. In Romans 1, we see something interesting. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made, so that they're without excuse. Now let me ask you something. How has God made His eternal power, His divine nature, clearly seen? Well, some people would point to the beauty of creation, some to the size of the universe, some to the complexity of life. All these are fine. But this may not be what the Bible's talking about, all right? Later in Romans... Paul seems to be following through on what he says here. In Romans 10, we read something very familiar, which is answered by Paul in a way that I think most people kind of miss. This is a familiar passage of Scripture, all right? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. We're really familiar with that passage, right? Probably some of you memorize that. Great passage. Paul is talking about the necessity of calling on the name of the Lord. But you can't do that unless you first believe. Right? He's working backwards here, people. And you can't believe unless you've heard. And you can't hear unless someone's preaching. And someone can't preach unless they've been sent. So they send a preacher, the preacher preaches, you hear, you believe, then you call in the name of the Lord. It just goes backwards. Makes sense, right? Got to do that, I guess. Yep, makes sense. All right. That's how it works. All right. Now notice the next verse. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. 
Now the objector here says, but I ask, have they not heard? And you would expect Paul to say, no, they haven't heard. That's why we got to send apostles out. Because they haven't heard. We got to get the word out. That's why we send preachers. That's why they have to be sent. But the construction here is a double negative. The effect is to rule out entirely the possibility that they did not hear. So Paul says, indeed they have. And then he quotes from Psalm 19 as proof that they have heard the gospel. Listen, Romans 10 is talking about the necessity of believing in Yeshua to be saved. We, we're together on that? That's what Romans 10 is talking about. Okay, so Paul asks, have they not heard that? And then he says, indeed they've heard it. What? And his proof that they have heard it is the gospel, uh, that they have heard the gospel is Psalm 19. You're like, what? Psalm 19 teaches the gospel? That's what Paul says here. Look at the text. It's all about the gospel. It's all about believing in Christ. And then he says, I ask you, have they heard? And you want to think, nope, that's why we got to do. That's why we got to go. And he said, nope, they've heard. They have. They've heard. Now, the standard view of Psalm 19 is that it tells us of the knowledge of God. Everybody agrees with that. And it's, and it's written in two volumes. Psalm 19 is broken in two sections. First of all, you have general revelation. That's what people call it. In other words, the creation. And then we have special revelation, which is the Bible. Okay? Now, my position, I don't think general revelation teaches you anything other than maybe you recognize, hey, somebody might have made all this. Okay? I think no one comes to Christ without special revelation. Okay? Now, in the first part of the psalm, most commentators see David saying that God reveals Himself through the world, through nature. And these verses are a declaration of the greatness of God as seen in the world of nature. But in Romans 10, Paul asks, Have they not heard? And indeed they have. And then he quotes this psalm. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech. Nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, here's the question. Is David saying that we can see the hand of God in the physical creation? In other words, you go to the Grand Canyon and you stand there and you're just like blown away. This is incredible. This is the biggest ditch I've ever seen, you know. I mean, it's amazing, all right. And, and, or we go down to the sea and we stand on the seashore and that would be my favorite place. And the waves are rolling in and you're just looking at the awesomeness of what God created. And you're just struck by it. Or you go to the Alps and you look and you see these magnificent peaks. And you're saying, this is amazing. And because of that, we know there's a God who sent His Son to die on the cross so we could be saved. No? I don't think so. Now remember the context that Paul is using here. He's using the context of hearing the Gospel. Right? The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Anybody want to take a guess what the word Hebrew word for sky here is? 
Rakia. Rakia. It's the firmament. The firmament, the beaten out metal plate, the firmament. Sky is a bad translation here. I don't know why they did that. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. So the rakia shows that's the word we saw in Genesis 1. And the stars, remember, are in the rakia, the expanse. I think what David is referring to here when he says the heavens declare the glory of God is the zodiac. Okay? The word zodiac, again, means path or way. It's the stages of the sun's path through the heavens in the 12 months. Now notice verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Does that make sense? Doesn't make sense to me. Verse 2 says, day to day pours out speech. Then the next verse says, there is no speech. What? Which is it? Are they pouring out speech or is there no speech? Well, again, we have a bad translation. The King James Version actually gets it right, and they put it this way. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. You see the difference there? Now, the Geneva Bible puts it the same way. The Geneva Bible says there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Then has this note, the heavens are the schoolmaster to nations no matter how barbarous. Okay? Albert Barnes writes this. The idea conveyed by our common version, King James Version here, is probably the correct one. This is the idea, the Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate. According to this interpretation, the meaning is there is no nation, there are no men, wherever may be their language, to whom the heavens do not speak, declaring the greatness of the glory of God. Now, I think that Psalm 19 is referring to what some have called the gospel and the stars. God's glory is seen in the zodiac. It lays out the plan of redemption. So what is this that utters or pours forth speech? Which voice goes to the whole world? Whatever it is, it shows the glory of God. So, is the glory of God seen in the existence of the stars alone? You just look at the stars and you say, man, there's got to be a God, right? Well, there's a lot of people who look at those stars and say, what a beautiful big bang, right? They don't see the glory of God. They're scientists, astronomers. They don't see the glory of God in those stars. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Yeshua the Christ. Listen, people, it is the work of Christ that shows the glory of God far more than anything else. So the glory of God is not just stars, but it's the work of Christ in redemption. If the heavens declare the glory of God, then they're saying something about Christ. There's something about the heavens that declares Christ. There's another indication, also which is explained later by Paul, about a message in the stars. We find in Genesis that Abram has no children, but God promised him many offspring. Genesis 13, 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. So Yahweh promises Abraham a multitude of descendants. But in Genesis 15, there's another incident, which Paul will explain later. And he says this, Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord Yahweh, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now in verse 5, Yahweh tells Abram, Number the stars. The word number here is from the Hebrew word safar, which can mean intensively to recount, that is, to celebrate, to show forth, to speak, to talk, to tell. It comes from a root meaning a book or a scroll. In the Septuagint, the word number is arithmeo, and it means reckon up. The meaning of arithmero is much wider than number, and it can mean enumerate or reckon. So what I think Yahweh said to Abram was not number the stars like, okay, one, two, three, four. Whew, this is a big job, Lord. No, I don't think that's what he's telling him. Recount or tell the stars. What? Tell the stars? There's a story in the stars. And Yahweh wanted Abram to make a note of that and to tell the story. See, there's something about this story in the stars that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he believed Yahweh. He believed what? You're going to have a lot of kids. And he says, oh, I believe that. Oh, now you're righteous. What? Just because I'm believing I'm going to have a lot of kids? What was it that he was believing? Was it that he's going to have a bunch of descendants? Or was it some message of redemption in the constellations? See, Paul tells us that Abraham had the gospel preached to him. You know that? Paul tells us that. In Galatians 3, 8, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all your descendants be blessed. Was the gospel in the stars? Whatever Abraham believed, it caused him to be counted as righteousness. So Yahweh evidently showed Abraham that one of his descendants would redeem man from the curse and satisfy the justice of God. How do I know that? Yeshua told me. And I don't mean in a small, still voice. I mean in John 8, 56, okay? He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham believed that God would provide a redeemer to deal with man's sin. When Yahweh told Abraham in Genesis 15:5, "So shall your descendants be," he was saying the Messiah would be Abraham's offspring. Now, what, was that what Abraham was to tell in the stars? Well, I think that Paul explains this in uh, in Galatians 3:16. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, and it does not say "and to offspring." It's not plural, referring to many, but referring to one. And your offspring, who is Christ. So the promise is to Abraham and Christ. Got that? How do we get in on it? Faith in Christ. Now we, now we inherit the promises. But the promise, you know, everyone says, well, all the, all the descendants of Israel, they all got... No, the promises was made to Abraham and Christ. Paul is clarifying that Yahweh told Abraham his offspring, the one, the Lord Christ. Now, remember... 
Abraham had received a very special promise that he would have a son at a particular time. Then in Genesis 22, we read of Yahweh's command for Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. The guy is 100 years old, he finally has a son, and now God says, hey, go kill your son. Um, what do you do? Uh, God, is that really you? I, I'm going to need a couple signs here. I can't just go, you know. What did he do? What does Abraham do when Yahweh says, take the son, Isaac, your promised child, the one I promised you, the one who the promises will come from, go kill him. What does Abraham do? He doesn't argue. He doesn't question. He simply obeys. I'm like, what am I missing here? Really, God? Did Abraham know? You know, I mean, he just, okay, I'll go. Did he know the Messiah had to be sacrificed and then would be resurrected? So it's like, oh, okay. If so, did he believe his son was the sacrifice? He might have. Look at Hebrews eleven seventeen 17-19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Where did he get that idea? From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham believed that Yahweh would raise the Messiah, and perhaps he believed Isaac was the seed. He was the Messiah. So Abraham seemed to believe that they were both coming back. He says here in 22.5, And Abraham said to his young men, You stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there, worship, and come back again to you. Wait a minute. He's going to kill him, but he's coming back. He may have believed that Isaac was the Messiah who would be resurrected. He seemed to have known the gospel. And he thinks this is the... It doesn't matter if he's dead, he's going to be resurrected. He may have seen this in the stars. Now, Paul refers directly to the psalm, which says, The heavens pour forth knowledge. Night after night, Abraham's told to recount or tell the stars, and he believed, and it's credited him for righteousness. Paul says the reference there is to Christ. So let's look at the stars. Let's see what if we can see anything in them, we read in the Bible that Yahweh named the stars. Familiar with that, right? Psalm 147.4. He determined the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. The stars have names. And their names all have meaning. And when you look at the ancient names, some interesting things emerge. However, because of the perversion of astrology today, many Christians are afraid to take a look at the names of the stars. God had a purpose in those names. And it's wise to remember that in Hebrew, it's not, like, it's not like English where we name our kids Bob or Joe or whatever because we just like the name. The Hebrew names had meaning. Okay? They had meaning. Christ was born in Bethlehem. What's Bethlehem? What's that word mean? Bethlehem. House of bread. Oh, that's interesting. The bread of life was born in the house of bread, in a bakery. Okay? There's so much from Hebrew. It's such a rich language that teaches us so much. Our language is not... Today we just choose names because we like them. Not to the Hebrews. The names had meanings. They meant something. 
Now, finding the original meaning is not always easy and can take a lot of time, a lot of research, going back into different languages, different roots, different cultures. But for enough of the stars as possible, and when it's done, something quite remarkable emerges. How are we supposed to know the meaning of the constellations? How did anybody before know the meaning of these constellations? Well, here's the thing. It's like reading. Okay, take a child they've never read. They never, just give them a book say, read this. Can they read it? Why not? They have to be taught to read, right? Same thing with the constellations. You have to be taught. If you're not taught, you're not going to get it. I mean, we can't look up at the sky and say, oh, look, the lion. That's a cool lion. And you're like, lion? Where do you see a lion up there? You've got to be taught. And when you're taught, you can read. You can learn. The constellations themselves have been known from antiquity. Their identities remain basically unchanged, although a few to the ancient large constellations, they've been divided up by modern astronomers into smaller constellations, but for many, their identities remain exactly the same as they've been. For instance, the constellations of Taurus, the bull, and Orion appear in a cave art dating back to 3000 to 2900 B.C. The names of the stars have retained their meaning in various languages. For instance, the constellation Virgo. You see the virgin there? (laughs) Virgo, meaning virgin, is referred to as Bethula in Hebrew, Parthenos in Greek, Kenya in Hindi, all mean virgin. This indicates a prior knowledge of their names of the stars and the constellations prior to the language confusion at Babel. This knowledge may well have come down from Noah or even Adam. I think the watchers may have something to do with telling these constellations. The star and constellation names have been handed down from antiquity. They knew these things. The book of Job is the earliest completed book of the Tanakh. It was written around 2900 B.C. The specific 12 constellations we recognize today as the Zodiac is referred to as the Mezorah in Hebrew. In Job... Pleiades and Orion are both mentioned by name. Job 38, 31, and 32. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth Maseroth in the season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? The word Maseroth here is translated as consolation in most translations. Maseroth is a Hebrew word that means constellation. It's always in the plural. Now, perhaps collectively, the zodiac. Job 26.13, Job says, God formed the constellation figures. He says, but by his wind the heavens were made fair. His hand perceived the fleeing serpent. The fleeing serpent mentioned here is Hydra. It's a constellation which takes seven hours to pass overhead because of its length. It's the longest constellation in the sky. So there's some indications in the Bible that there's something going on up there in the sky that we are no longer aware of, but that people of generations long ago knew. Around 27 to 2500 B.C., the Sumerians recorded the existence of a tablet of the stars of the heavens. Mesopotamian tablets dating 1800 B.C. record both star names and observations of the planetary movements. As early as 150... Ptolemy, in his Almagest, lists 48 constellations and 1,022 star names. His accurate description of their position and of each constellation and star, 
he mentioned helps us today even trace some of these stars out. Now, some think that the various pictures associated with the constellations were just ancient imaginations, you know, taken from arrangements in the stars. But that's crazy, because when you look at the constellation Cassiopeia, it looks like a what? Okay, at best, it's a bent W, right? Do you see there, you know what the constellation is? It's a woman chained to a chair. Don't you see that? Now you see it, right? There it is, okay, Cassiopeia. Sagittarius looks more like a teapot than an archer, okay? And yet, the names of the constellations tend to be consistent with small variations throughout the different cultures around the world. When we look into the ancient records, we see the ancient Persian and Arabian traditions, and even the Jewish tradition, preserved by Josephus, suggests that Bible astronomy was invented by Adam, Seth and Enoch. Maybe God communicates things. Maybe the watchers had nothing to do with this. Maybe it was just God talking to Adam, explaining these things to him, explaining them to Seth, explaining them to Enoch. For 2,500 years, the revelation of God's redemptive plan for mankind was written in the naming of the stars and their grouping and the 12 signs of the zodiac. Associated with each sign's constellation are three other smaller constellations called deacons, for a total of 36, each rising in the same area of the sky as their associated major constellation. Every 10 days, a different deacon is visible on the eastern horizon just before sunrise. And 2,100 years before Christ, symbols on an Egyptian coffin show that they were used to keep track of time. You can use it just like a clock. It's just that accurate, okay? Now, there's an order to these, okay? The first sign of the zodiac is known best by her Latin name, Virgo, the Virgin. This is the first of the constellations. This is where you start, and I'll explain how you know that in a little bit here. But Virgo is a young maiden holding a leafy branch or a small sheaf of grain. And the Maserah, the Hebrew name of this constellation, is Beth Ula, which also means virgin, and she holds a branch in her hand. The brightest star in the constellation is Spica, which is Latin for ear of grain. Now, the Hebrew name for the star, Shema, means branch, as does the Arabic name Elzimic. In Egyptian, the star is Apalia, the seed. Here's what's interesting there are 20 names, there are 20 Hebrew words that can mean branch. But Sema is consistently associated with the Messiah, who is the branch who will sprout out of the root of David. Isaiah 4.2, Jeremiah 23.5, Zechariah 3.8. In Arabic, the whole constellation is called the branch. And the other bright stars in the constellation are Java Java, which means gloriously beautiful, and al Muridin, who have who shall have dominion, that's what that means. And Chaldean, the last star, is Vindima Atrix, sun who cometh. Now, when the ancient people looked up at the constellation Virgo, they understood that there was going to be a promised branch of God who would be born of a virgin and come down to earth to have dominion. Bethula, Virgo, corresponds beautifully with Genesis 3.15, Isaiah 7.14, the first biblical prophecy in Genesis 3.15 of the Messiah, born of the seed of a woman, born of a virgin. 
Now, what's interesting, the three deacon constellations associated with Virgo are Coma, Centaurus, and Bootes. In the Egyptian temple of Dindira, Coma is portrayed as a woman holding a child. And Bullinger quotes the Arabian astronomer Al-Bumazir saying of Coma, there arises in the first deacon as the Persians, Chaldeans, and Egyptians, and the two Hermes and Ascalaeus teach a young woman whose Persian name denotes a pure virgin sitting on a throne nourishing an infant boy. The boy, I say, having a Hebrew name by some nations called Isu. That should ring a bell for some of you in the Greek. For Yeshua, all right? Another deacon constellation associated with Virgo is Centaurus, all right? The centaur. We know that from pagan mythology. What's so special about this? How is this going to relate to Christ? Well, you got half man, half horse. A centaur is a being with two natures, okay? The name of the constellation in Hebrew is Biza, which means the despised, as in Isaiah 53, 5. He is despised and rejected of man. Azimuth, which means sin offering, was another name for the constellation in Hebrew. And again, cultures across the board all have these same concepts here. So we see in the constellation Virgo and her deacons the framework of a story that's going to follow. We see the virgin suckling in the greatly desired sun, also called the seed of the woman or the branch. Then we see the two-natured teacher, the prophet who was pierced and sacrificed, and finally the coming one who will hurry with a sickle in his hand, ready for a harvest. Now, as I said, this have, these constellations have an order. They start with Virgo, they end with Leo. The Egyptians recorded the zodiac in a circle on the ceiling of the temple, Eshni. And you wouldn't necessarily know where to begin. You look up there, okay, where do we start? Where's the story start? Where's it end? except that the figure of a sphinx connects the two signs of Virgo and Leo. The word sphinx means to bind closely together. The sphinx has the head of the woman and the body of the lion. So the story of Yeshua's birth begins with the virgin, the woman, and ends with the king of kings, the lion. So you start and you go around and it ends with the lion. All right, now, with that as an introduction, let's look at our text for today, okay? (laughs) You brought lunch, right? <laughs> Revelation 12, one, no, this won't take long, okay? <laughs> but I, but I, you know, you got the background now, so you'll be able to get this. Now, notice these two verses. John says, and a great sign appeared in the heaven. Okay, now we're tracking with this. We're seeing things in the heavens. Here's a woman, and she's clothed with the sun, and the moon are underneath her feet, and on her head there's a crown of 12 stars. So he gives us a star layout of this woman. She's pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. Now John says a great sign. It's important to recognize the relationship of all this to the astronomical symbolism in this text. The word John uses here for sign is a term used in the ancient world to describe the constellations of the zodiac. John's model for the vision of the church is in the constellation Virgo. Now, here we see the constellation, and it does have 12 stars. 
Virgo is the second largest constellation. It's one of the earliest to be distinguished, and it lies on the zodiac east of Leo. All of the 12 stars are visible ones that would have been seen by observers without telescopes, just looking up and seeing them. It seems likely that the 12 stars also represent the 12 signs of the zodiac from ancient times regarded as symbols of the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember Joseph's famous dream? The 12 tribes were symbolized as the sun, moon, and stars, the constellation bowing down. In his book, The Birth of Christ Recalculated, Ernest Martin says, In the period of Christ's birth, the sun entered the head position of the woman about August 13th and exited from her feet about October 2nd. But John saw the scene when the sun clothes or adorns the woman. This surely indicates that the position of the sun in the vision was located somewhere mid-bodied of the woman. It's clothing her between her neck and her knees. The only times in the year that the sun could be in a position to clothe the celestial woman to be mid-bodies is when it was located about 150 to 170 degrees along the elliptic. This clothing of the woman by the sun occurs for a 20-day period each year. That's it. This 20-degree spread could indicate the general time when Christ was born, in 3 B.C. The sun would have entered the celestial region about August 27th and exited from it about September 15th. Now, if John in the book of Revelation is associating the birth of Christ with the period when the sun is mid-body to the woman, then, then Christ would have had to be born within that 20-day period. But from the point of view of the Magi, who were astronomers, this would have been the only logical sign under which the Messiah might be born, especially if he were to be born of a virgin. Even today, astrologers recognize that the sign of Virgo is the one which has reference to a messianic world ruler to be born of a virgin. Now, the key to narrowing down the date is the moon. John said it was located under her feet. Now, since the feet of Virgo, the virgin, represents the last seven degrees of the constellation in the time of Christ, this would have been between 180 and 187 degrees along the ecliptic. All right, The moon has to be positioned somewhere under that seven-degree arch. But the moon also has to be in the exact location when the sun is mid-bodied to Virgo. In the year 3 BC, these two factors came to precise agreement for less than two hours as observed from Palestine on September 11th. This is the only day in the whole year that could have take, this could have taken place. Now, I am not an astronomer, but if Martin is right, then it seems quite clear that Christ was born on September 11th in the year 3 B.C. And like I said, if you want more detail into this, I, I would recommend Heiser's the, birth of, the Date of the Birth of Christ, that podcast. He goes into great detail, much more than I'm dealing with here, about how these signs lined up. Now, what I also want you to understand, the date September 11th was the beginning of the Feast of Trumpets. So Christ is born on the Feast of Trumpets, all right, which is also the beginning of the Jewish New Year in 3 B.C. And Jewish tradition held that the Day of Trumpets was the day that commemorated the beginning of the world. Jewish tradition also held that Noah's birthday was Tishri 1. So many Jews would have believed that the Messiah was born on Noah's birthday. They shared the same birthday. All right, There's a lot of 
traditions, a lot of things that hook together on September 11th on our calendar. So it's not December 25th when Christ was born. It's September 11th. So we're off a little bit there. So next time, you know, September 11th has a bad connotation in our minds. We think of the towers, you know, but no, that, that's the birth of Christ. All right. That's when it happened. Now, the primary objection to this date, again, everybody objects to something, right? The primary objection to the date is that it violates the accepted date of Herod's death. Okay? Because most scholars put it at 4 BC. But Herod can't be dying in 4 BC if Yeshua was born in 3 BC. It also has to be that Herod died in 1 BC, and a 1 BC date for Herod's death is very plausible. Recent research into how 1 BC date for Herod's death is historically coherent. Um, there's a couple things. Orman Edwards in Herodian chronology lays this out. Also, Andrew Steinman uh, in When Did Herod the Great Reign? Steinman has a lot of data leading to a 1 BC death for Herod and shows that the standard 4 BC date for Herod's death actually has a lot of problems on its own. So some interesting stuff there. I don't know if he can even get a hold of these works anymore. So what about December 25th? We talked about that. I said, you know, there's something significant to there. What is it? What's significant about December 25th? What? Pagans? All right. Ernest Martin states this. Jupiter, recognized by Jews and Gentiles alike as the planet of the Messiah, was located in Virgo's womb and standing still directly over Bethlehem on December 25th, 2 B.C., when the child was a little over a year old. Matthew states that the Holy Family was settled in a house by the time the Magi visited. Now, most people miss this, okay, because our cultural understanding is so far off, you know, but look at Matthew chapter 2, 10 and 11. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. They're really talking about a planet here, okay? Exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, Herod had ordered the slaughter of infants from two years old and under, according to the time that the Magi showed up, indicating the child is no longer a newborn. Newborn, newborn. Yeah, no longer a newborn. All right, this is over a year after the birth of Christ when the Magi show up. Now, I know, I know, you see the little Christmas nativity scene, and the Magi are there, and they're in a stable. That's all nonsense, okay? None of it's culturally right, okay? Christ wasn't born, you know, the inn is not, you know, an inn like a hotel, and the stable, you know, was he wasn't born in a barn, or he's born in the house. So we talked about this before. The houses had animals in the house, okay? Protected the animals, kept the house warm. There was no room in the guest chamber. That's what the inn means, a guest chamber in Luke. So he was born in the main floor of the house, all right? Well, this is... Over a year later, the Magi show up because they see the star. They come to worship him. And I think that's really cool. Our date, December 25th, these men are coming to worship the king. So, yeah, with gifts. But we got it wrong because we give gifts to ourselves and to others, you know. We're supposed to give gifts to Christ, you know. Oh, okay, that's a good, yeah. Jeff's got it, Jeff's got it worked out. Because we're Christians, Christ is in us, so you give... I like this, Jeff. Christ, listen, Christ is in me. 
bring the gifts in here, okay? <laughs> bring your gifts to Yeshua through me, all right? Somehow we turn lust into worship. <laughs> but yeah, I just think that's cool. I think it's cool that, okay, December 25th does have some meaning. Somehow it came out of somewhere, and here's the, here's the Magi. They're there worshiping the king. How many were there? We have no idea. Well, people say, well, there's three. Because there's only three gifts. <laughs> right, so there had to be three Magi, right? Come on, people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Some, a couple of them could have brought gold. Maybe they, you know, maybe one brought nothing. He just, no, they wouldn't have done that. He came to worship. All right. Bottom line here. I'm going to wrap this up. All right. I want you to understand that it really doesn't matter when Yeshua was born or how we celebrate his birth. What matters is that we understand why he was born. The birth of Yeshua is a miraculous event of great significance to mankind. The incarnation has got to be the greatest miracle, the most fantastic truth recorded in the pages of Scripture. God became a man. Why? He became a man to die for us. Christ's death was substitutionary. He died to take our sin debt and provides for us His righteousness. Yeshua paid it all. Every bit of it, people. There's nothing left on your tab. It's not like you've got to work a little bit off. It's paid in full. Past, present, future. He paid it all. And what does He ask of us? But trust me. Trust me. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for an opportunity to look at Your Word. Father, some very different concepts this morning we looked at. And again, I just asked that We'd be Bereans, Father, and we search this out to see if it's so. Examine it. See what's there. Lord, I think it's just amazing. There's a lot of things about Abraham and the stars, and I think that there might have been a message there that he was to tell. He was to recount. Thank you, Lord, for the birth of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you left the glories of heaven to become a man so you could suffer and die for our sins. Lord, in understanding the truth of the gospel, may we as believers live our lives in a way that is a thank offering to you for what you have done for us. Lord, we love you. Thanks for your incredible love for us. Amen. Okay. Questions, comments. Remember, I'm not an astrologer, so I'll... records of why Enoch was left out of the Bible? Well, there's arguments about that, okay? Um, I have a message called, Was Enoch Scripture? And I take the position, no, it wasn't Scripture, it didn't get in there. But that it doesn't have to be Scripture, because the thing, and people argue that. Some people say it should have been Scripture, some people say no, it should have been left out. Um, I, I don't think it should have been part of the canon, but... It informs us, as the other pseudepigraphal works do, of what that first century Jew had in his head, what they were thinking, what they, you know, because we tend to read the Bible from a 21st century American position, which is so far from, you know, we got to get ourselves into the head of those first century Jews so we understand what they thought and how they understood things. And when we do that, then we're like, oh, this makes much more sense to us. 
So we learn a lot. I mean, there's some fascinating stuff in Enoch. It's, it's definitely worth the read. Okay? And, and the other suit, I'm just I'm very hesitant to encourage people to read this because most people don't read their Bibles. And I'd rather push you to read your Bible first. But if you're on a regular track of Bible reading, read some of these books. They're, they're fascinating. They really are. And you'll be scratching your head and you'll be oh, that is really cool. You know? You'll probably learn some stuff. You know, like Abraham loved God from the age of three. Wow. Anybody else? Okay, good. It just it just shows you how how broad God is. You know how well way I, back and how broad His Majesty and just the consumption of who He is is way beyond. I think it's way beyond. You know, that's a cool thing. Yeah. You know, you go out, you get away from the city. Okay, you go out into the woods or out in the mountains and, and look at the stars. And it's just amazing, you know, the beauty and the glory there. But to think that there's a message there laid out by God, you know, like I said, starts with the Virgin and goes all the way around to Leo the Lion. And you can just feel the connect. And in the book, in Sice's book, um, it goes into a great deal of all the constellations and their position in the gospel and what, you know, what they're telling. And to me, it just seems like there's a real story about redemption in those stars. You know, that they, and again, they were taught how to read them. So just like you were taught to read a book, they were taught to read the stars. They could see that. And that's, uh, I think it's pretty, pretty, pretty cool anyway. All right. We're done? Let me check and see if we got any questions here. All right, this is... Uh, junior asks, observation. Well, it doesn't ask. It's an observation. <laughs> Incarnation. And then he says, chili con carne. Is, <laughs> is chili with meat in Spanish. Meat equals flesh. Incarn equals in the flesh. I'm like, okay, that, that's interesting, Junior. <laughs> Okay, uh, Jelaine asked a question here. She says, from the definition of incarnation, does that refer to conception or birth? Well, it had to start with conception. Okay, that, I mean, obviously it started there. God became a man, had to start just like other people started. So, yes. <laughs> I'm going to take the easy way out. It's the back door. <laughs> Um, so another, it says some food for thought. Turmeric was called the golden spice and of high value, probably worth much more than the precious metal. The spice fits its help. The spice fit is its help to reduce inflammation and many other health issues. This gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Huh. Okay. <clears throat> What pod, what podcast number for Michael Heiser? I don't remember. I said it in the thing, so you're going to have to rewind and find it. Okay. If you just go to Heiser's uh, website and go to the episode page, and there's a search engine. Type in the birth of Jesus, and it, it'll bring you up the episode. Okay, That's, that's simple enough. Uh, Tanya said, this sermon was awesome. Thanks, Tanya. I'm going to watch it again and again. 
Why do you think Zodiac is not preached about more pastors and biblical scholars? People are afraid to say anything that might get them, they might be wrong about and might get them in trouble. Okay, you know, I, I go out on a limb. I don't, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm just putting the material out there, okay? And I'm telling you, I'm challenging you to look into it and see. Most people are like, probably most people don't even know about this, all right? The only other pastor I've heard preach on this was James Kennedy. Yes, Kennedy has done it. Um, have you read his book? No, I have not read Kennedy's book on that. But like I said, I would encourage you, listen to Heiser's podcast, get one of these books, you know, by Sice or Kennedy, and, and look at it and, you know, just see what you think. There's either some awful strong coincidences, okay, or God is teaching us some things. And like I said, to, here's my big sticking point, Romans 10. All about the gospel. It's about Christ. Okay? Then he says, have they not heard? Oh yeah, they heard. Wait a minute. You just said we got to send a preacher. And how they hear? Well, he quotes Psalm 19. I, I, that's just hard for me to get around. Now, I might be missing something. I understand that. But for me, it's pretty clear.